0: Welcome once again to Expanding Eyes, where today we are going to conclude our discussion of Homer's Odyssey by talking about the rather odd and problematic case of book 24, the final book, and then go on to discuss the themes of the Odyssey in terms of trying to draw together a possible unified thematic pattern through this remarkably complex text. And go on to talk even more briefly, but I hope intriguingly, of how fascinating the figure of Odysseus, or to use his Latin name Ulysses, has been through all the centuries of literature thereafter people recreating this character time after time, in century after century, all the way up to our own time. Then, next week, the story continues. We go back to the fall of Troy. We continue the saga, but this time on the other side, the Trojan side, with Virgil's Aeneid, the great Latin Roman epic and I do urge you to stick with the storyline because it is a continuing storyline. Up until recently, in fact, it was the Aeneid that was regarded as the greatest epic, greater than the Homeric epics. That's no longer true. The popularity of the Aeneid has taken something of a nosedive in modern times, partly because of its imperialistic theme. But I urge people to stay tuned because there's far more to the Aeneid than just an apology for imperialism. And in fact, it may well be that Virgil is subverting, or at least ironically qualifying, any praise of the idea of empire and the imperial theme, very much as the Odyssey seems to be subverting the ideal of the old heroic warrior code. It has one of the greatest love stories in all of Western literature, the doomed love affair of Dido and Aeneas, and it's a great story and a worthy continuation. So there is more to come. Today, I want to start really at the end of book 23 of the Odyssey with the reunion of Odysseus and his wife Penelope. We saw that last week, and it's a moving reunion after 20 years after all the trials and tribulations. And a rumor or legend has come down, that originally that's where the Odyssey came to an end, and that Book 24 and, as I suspect, the very tail end, the last couple of pages of Book 23, are by a different hand. And in many people's estimation, including, I will add my own, an inferior hand, the Quality takes something of a plummet at this point, and we do indeed wonder whether this is the same author. If it is the same author, Homer was, there's an old cliche phrase, even Homer nods. This was his biggest nod, perhaps, if it was really the same poet. I suspect it is a different poet. I suspect that there has been something doctored here. And yet, though the quality, artistically, is clearly inferior in certain ways, that we'll go on to point out in a moment, I think I could see why someone felt impelled to try to add on to the end of the epic and i'm going to make a case for that that although the quality is not as great there's a rationale for what is being said in it let's go back to that reunion where Odysseus and Penelope after the trick the bed trick the tricking of Odysseus by the even more cunning Penelope with the bed that she pretends has been cut down, but is really still rooted in the ground, symbol of their marriage. Once she reveals that that was just a trick, they came into each other's arms, go to bed that night, and stay up all night, as it says, Uh, Odysseus telling all of his story to Penelope, and... Ending that part with the line, she could not close her eyes till all was told. And if there was a moment where you might simply draw a line and cut off the rest as unnecessary, perhaps, an embarrassment, perhaps, it might be right there with that line. Start the movie credits running right at that point and the closing music comes on, and that's the end. But no, we get a couple more pages in book 23 of a totally unnecessary, okay, Odysseus told his whole story mostly of the wanderings, Uh, and it simply, boringly to us, synopsizes those wanderings, repeating the epic, like the end of a student essay where the concluding paragraph simply repeats verbatim everything that the student has just said everything well it depends on how you define everything circe calypso does he really tell her everything the text is rather cagey about that he mentions the names of those women. He speaks, or it speaks, of Circe, her deceits in magic. It does not say that he told her about being Circe's lover and in fact returning to spend an entire year with her after they get through the underworld. It mentions Calypso and how, in what Fitzgerald translates as her devoted lust, She swore he should not die nor grow old all his days, but adds, but he held out against her. And we have seen that Odysseus has a rather interesting way of holding out against her, which does not necessarily include celibacy. So it's again the double standard at work, if it's even really Homer. But then we turn to book 24, and things get even more problematic because we find ourselves wondering, do we need this? Isn't this rather just naive and excessive? To examine that question, let's make a list of the things that happen, which are basically three in book 24. First of all, we are confounded by returning to the underworld. Odysseus does not, but we do, courtesy of the narrator, where we see the ghosts of the suitors in death coming down to the underworld and meeting up with the ghosts of Achilles and Agamemnon, whom Odysseus had talked to in his descent to the underworld in Book 11. and. Do we need that with the suitors definitely do we need yet one more time of Agamemnon's misogynistic cynicism about women even though he does yet once again praise Penelope and contrast her with his lousy wife Clytemnestra but again you know just creaky plot device do we need it second Seemingly inexplicably, we return to Odysseus, who goes out into the orchards and finds his aged father, Laertes, whom he has known since his mother told him in the underworld, is in a kind of full-fledged old-age decline, not so much, however, just because of age, but because of despair, over the loss of his only son. This is, once again, it's explicitly said in the Odyssey. This is a family that for whatever reason, genetics or the will of the gods or both, where one offspring has been the rule down through the line. And Odysseus is the only child of Laertes and Anticlea, just as Telemachus is the only child of Odysseus. And Laertes is declining in despair for what he thinks is the loss of his only son. Well, fine, we're going to go fetch dad and bring him back into the fold again. But why deceive him and play with the head of this grieving, declining old man by pretending to be some other identity just as he has all along in the second half of the odyssey why play around like this this cat and mouse game but nevertheless that happens and then finally ending both book 24 and the odyssey itself we see the father of Antinous, the ringleader of the suitors, stirring up people to come and attack the palace to fulfill the heroic code ethic of revenge, not just angry parents, despite the fact that their spoiled rich kid sons richly deserved the deaths that they got, still the heroic code mandated revenge if anybody did anything against your family or your people and that has to be ended by the descent of the gods themselves from on high a lightning bolt from zeus comes down and then athena though she does take the form of mentor nevertheless is what later would be called deus ex machina, the god descending from the machine in Greek tragedy. When the gods on the Greek stage descended from Mount Olympus, they actually had stage machinery by which the actor would come down from on high. And that became that phrase uh, later attached to that motif in Latin, later became a phrase for any time in somebody's plot where something happens simply to resolve the plot. It enters not logically, but just conveniently. That's the deus ex machina, the god from the machine comes down and saves the day implausibly. And here is Athena who does not need a machine because she is a goddess, but nevertheless descending simply to end the storyline, end of epic, do we need all of this because it does seem creaky. I won't fully defend it, but I will point to some of the things that this further information does add to the complete look at the story. First of all, on the individual and family level, though the tricking of Laertes, the tricking of the grandfather, seems in a way unaccountable, you could make a case, however clumsily it may be handled, you could make a case that what Odysseus is doing is putting his dad through the same death and rebirth pattern that we have seen informing the rest of the Odyssey, the death to an old identity, and the rebirth and rejuvenation in a new identity. Because Laertes, although he is old, is not in a proper decline. This is artificial, caused by grief, despair, and passivity. And you might say he needs to knock his dad out of that and does it in a kind of manipulative way, but he does it. And to me, and to students in discussions I've had over the years in the classroom, we do find it moving to see all three generations of the family, the grandfather, the father, the son, standing side by side, ready to take on the parents of the suitors and other people who have come to revenge even though the gods preempt that and put an end to it that's a great image really however clumsily it may be led up to as for the ghosts of the suitors and the gods descending deus ex machina to put an end to things We do have to remember that there is a social level of theme in the Odyssey. And I've tried at various points to stress that although we follow the main characters and uh, identify sympathetically with Telemachus, Penelope, and Odysseus, and a few other people, there is a larger social debate implicitly going on in the Odyssey and the wrap-up with the suitors does, again, however clumsily, fulfill the social concerns of the larger Odyssey. As I say, none of it is handled particularly well, but the need for it is definitely there. And that brings me to passing over to an attempt to draw together some of the themes that we have been following piecemeal throughout the discussion of the Odyssey over a good number of weeks now in an attempt to take a at least a quick look at what might draw all this together. Because I have been drawing out and throwing out various themes or thematic patterns in the Odyssey that I have not connected together into a whole. And I'd like to take a quick stab at doing that because this is so remarkably complex a work and the unity is not obvious the way it is with a more fully explicitly designed work like the Divine Comedy. Just quickly then, We are told in the opening lines that this is the story, not just of the wanderer, but of the polytropos, that wonderful untranslated word that means the man of many turnings, polytropos. And that is the focus of the epic, that is the key. How so, now that we've actually been through the story and seen what happens, we can return to that word. Well, on the level of the surface plot, it's rather obvious. Odysseus is polytropos in being, adaptable, inventive, resourceful, protean, that English word that we get from the god Proteus in the story, the shapeshifter. Odysseus can't literally change shape, although he is quite good at disguise and disguises himself any number of times in that way, directly reflecting the theme of Proteus. But he's Protean in a larger sense, and we've seen this. He's doesn't have just one trick up his sleeve. He isn't just a magnificent warrior in the way that Achilles was in the Iliad and that most other heroic epic heroes are Beowulf in English literature, for example, he doesn't just have one ability. He can do the heroic thing, and he does so fighting the suitors, but he has more than one trick up his sleeve, and that resourcefulness has an almost Darwinian survival value in that world. It is an irony of the text that this is an epic of peacetime rather than war, and the peacetime world is actually more dangerous than the world of war because it calls for many ways of defeating many enemies and dangerous situations. And Odysseus is very well adapted to that Herodian peacetime world. To do so takes intelligence. He is the man of brains rather than brawn. Although he has the brawn, he's most known for his brains, for his quick mind and inventiveness. And, uh... What that enables him to do is not only to think up ways out of hard spots, which we'd watch him do that over and over again, as in the Cyclops' cave, but that sharp mind also is a skeptical mind. Odysseus has the capacity to be skeptical and stop and think, and to see through false appearances, which are many in this world. Boy, could you apply this to our own world, a world of false appearances, aided by the internet and social media, aided by political party that has abandoned all pretense at truth and simply lies to get whatever it thinks it needs. More than ever, we need the kind of skepticism the ability not to immediately take appearances for reality that odysseus models for us and that intelligence and that skeptical mind also are able to use language language is a great tool and weapon in the hands of odysseus he uses stories he uses lies which are a particular type of story to shape people's realities, to manipulate them, and also to see through the false stories of other people. So he's polytropos in all of those ways. Now, when we get to the wanderings, I tried to make a case that there is a deeper imagery above the uh, colorful storyline of adventure on the top, of the wanderings, a storyline which has the imagery coming from the world of mythology of the loss and regaining of identity, death to the old identity, birth of a new identity. That happens to Odysseus who loses everything and gains it all back again in the second half of life but it belongs to all stages of life. Telemachus, who is paralleled with his father all the way through the epic, not just in the telemachia of the first four books, is also dying to his old identity of dependent boy and gaining a new identity, whether or not he measures up to his famous dad Nevertheless, he turns into a very admirable young man. Finally, the Odyssey hints that this is the story of all of us, that we are all, we may not be heroic adventurers, but we are all on a wandering, a quest in which, in the course of the stages of life, we have to learn to be polytropos, to, on the deepest level, not just get out of tight spots or use language quick-wittedly, but to learn how to die to an old self and go on as a new self over and over again. And it never necessarily stops. That also is involved. Less obviously, but I will make a case that some of the other Subtexts or themes of the Odyssey are also linked with this polytropos theme. I've mentioned the theme of social models, good and bad societies, the good society of the Phaeacians and the opposite extreme, clearly intended to be symmetrical, the anti-society, perhaps, of the Cyclops and his people. With any number of things in between, including the anarchistic state of the island of Ithaca at the moment. But what underlies that theme of models is the sense of the death of the old social model, the social model of the Iliad. The Odyssey, a very strong case can be made of the the Odyssey as a revisionist of the Iliad in its whole ideology or stance towards life. The old model of the heroic warrior code is dead, is devalued. The scene in which Odysseus talks with Agamemnon and Achilles in the underworld is totally disillusioning about the value of that code. Achilles is miserable. Heroic code, glory, that he left behind him, now means nothing to him. Only the good career of his son cheers him up. His own career is meaningless to him. It is, to me, clearly a revisionist, subversive moment. If that model is dead, what could supersede it? And that brings us back to the Phaeacians who are, yes, a type of utopian never-never land, in terms of the Phaeacians themselves. And Poseidon, old grump to the last, apparently does seal off that island so that no one else will ever find it, and it's truly never-never land. But there's another, another island, and that's the island that Odysseus takes back home with him in his head. It is a model. At the end of Plato's Republic, Socrates says he doesn't think the Republic, the utopia he's been sketching, could probably be realized in actual Greek life, but he goes on to say that the wise person will have that, will be living in the Republic, in his head, no matter where he happens to actually live. And that's true to me of the Phaearchian episode as well. So the social models theme also links up to the polytropos death and rebirth of identity imagery. And finally, with that masculine-dominated heroic code world that is passing away, perhaps the Odyssey is strongly implying that the masculine-dominating value system is going to go with it. Yes, the odyssey on the surface seems remarkably ambivalent and distrustful about women, and I would not by any means absolve it by modern standards of certain elements of sexism. And yet, on the whole, what it's saying to me is, yes, there are people like Clytemnestra, women like Clytemnestra, Not good, not cool, but that's not the whole story. This is a hero, again, unique, not true of Achilles, not true of Beowulf, the standard heroic warrior. This hero, Odysseus, needs the feminine. He not only needs to relate to it, he needs the feminine in a very direct way. He needs Arte to help him back home in one way. He needs Circe and her guidance in another way. And finally, when he does get back home, he needs a woman like Penelope, who's a match for him. So, yes, we can criticize Any number of things about the treatment of women. The double standard, for example. uh, Odysseus is allowed to sleep with other women, but Penelope is not allowed to sleep with other men, and so forth. But there's something else going on here that looks forward. At least I would make that case. And, finally, speaking of forward, this guy, Odysseus, has had a remarkable career. I can't think of any other figure in literature who has so fascinated so many other writers in so many other ages of literature. A few centuries after Homer, Greek tragedy on the Athenian stage adapted many of the stories and added new elements and new storylines to the Trojan War saga, and Odysseus shows up in any number of those. Those of us who have been following this podcast from the beginning with the Divine Comedy, when we get to the Middle Ages, we know that Dante uh, was also fascinated with Odysseus, now known by his Latin name of Ulysses, the Ulysses Canto in the Inferno, where a proud, unbowed Ulysses passes before Dante's eyes, condemned for giving false advice for the vice of lying that we know was indeed his specialty, and yet a curiously impressive haunting figure nevertheless if we go further into the renaissance we have shakespeare himself one of shakespeare's less popular and less well-known plays is actually about the trojan war it's called troilus and cressida and although it's jumping off point is actually some medieval legendary where the Middle Ages embroidered the subject of the Trojan War. Nevertheless, Ulysses, again the Latin name, appears there as well, and gives a famous Shakespearean set speech, the Speech on Degree, in which Ulysses makes a case that there has to be degrees of order and authority in society. And it's all quite Machiavellian as Shakespeare's age would have said, it's quite the politician, quite hypocritical and manipulative, because what we actually see in what is perhaps Shakespeare's most bitter, disillusioned play, not his darkest play, that's King Lear, but perhaps his most ironic play, is This is anything but a society that believes in proper degrees of anything. It believes in power and manipulation, like much of our own, perhaps. Fascinating play, though not often put on the stage. But there is Ulysses. In the Victorian age, I've mentioned in passing the two famous poems of Tennyson, The Lotus Eaters and Ulysses, in which he continues, or expands upon the Odyssey. In the 20th century, probably the most famous single work of literature in English of the 20th century was James Joyce's Ulysses, in which Ulysses is updated to become the Jewish advertising businessman Leopold Bloom a modern version of the wanderer who wanders through the city of Dublin throughout the course of a 24-hour day, and all of his experiences and exploits are paralleled against exploits of Odysseus in the Odyssey. Finally, in contemporary literature, I may have mentioned Nikos Kazantzakis the modern Greek author, who wrote Zorba the Greek, out of which the famous movie was made in the 1950s, who wrote The Last Temptation of Christ, of which Martin Scorsese made the controversial movie in the 1980s. But Kazantzakis also pulled off the feet of a continuation, in verse form, of the Odyssey, at twice the length of the original Odyssey, sending Odysseus on new adventures after the ending of the Homeric Odyssey, a new series of adventures all the way up to his old age and death. It is extremely long. It is not in a modern style of poetry, but it's been translated beautifully by Cimon Fryer into English. I've enjoyed it over the years, even though, as I say, it's not a fashionable way of writing poetry now. And finally, even more recently, the West Indian poet Derek Walcott has a stage version of the Odyssey called *Omeros*, just a couple of decades ago. And I doubt that we'll ever be done with the fascination of the odyssey i have been teaching the odyssey my entire teaching career uh, 33 years now and i am by no means done with it i hope to do it again and again if at all possible and i'm glad that you out there have been along uh, for the ride this time and we will go to talk about virgil's aeneid the next time hope you're with us Mm-hmm.